Well, as you note, I'm not uh, continuing in Luke this morning, taking a little break. For those of you who haven't been here for a while, I do this from time to time. (laughs) In the middle of a series, something will jump out at me, and and I feel uh, like it's worth spending some time talking about it. So that's what I want to do this morning in regard to Psalm 32. What I've been kind of looking for in the back of my mind for a long time is something that would help me explain why we worship, why we worship the way we worship in particular, here at Mission, but in general as the Church of Jesus Christ. Something that would be simple and kind of catch the the basic ideas, not only that would help me explain it, but that would help you explain it to others as well. The, The more things change out there in the evangelical world, the more different we look here at this church. And uh, people might think we're just old-fashioned or stuck in the mud or flirting with, you know, Catholic ideas. I've heard that before. Uh, But what I want to to be able to to do is, is in a simple way, be able to summarize the the scriptural foundation of, of our worship and why we do what we do. And Psalm 32, I think, is, is a helpful way of looking at that. And we'll... Uh, I'll explain more about that as we get into the sermon itself. Let me read it for us. This is God's Word. It is God's Word for us. Psalm 32. A masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's go before him once more briefly in prayer. Our Father in heaven, again we come before you. And as we do as a practice, we ask that you would bless this time as we come before your word. We do ask that you would speak to us this morning and that you would fulfill your promise, that your word goes out and does not return to you empty, rather that it accomplishes everything for which you purpose it and is successful in the things for which you send it. For us, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that our eyes might be open to see, that our ears might be open to hear, the things that you would have us learn this morning. And so make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that we might walk 
according to what it teaches us. Father, we ask all of these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, General Assembly opens every year on a Tuesday night, and it opens with a worship service. The prior year's moderator speaks. If he's an ordained teaching elder, he preaches. (laughs) If he's a ruling elder, he exhorts us. This year we had Dr. Brian Chappell, former president of Covenant Seminary, and now a pastor at, I think the name of the church is Grace Presbyterian in Missouri. He preached on Psalm 32, and he preached a wonderful sermon. I'm not going to copy it. (laughs) I couldn't if I tried. Um, Many of you know that he is a man who has written books, and he teaches on preaching and and homiletics. I'm not even going to try to copy him. But as he was preaching through the psalm, there was an idea that struck me, and wonderful sermon, but I'm also thinking in the back of my mind, there's something more going on here. And I had preached on this psalm back when we had our evening service, almost seven years ago now. And so I went back and checked my notes and kind of got a little bit of reassurance and thought about it more in the next couple of days and became uh, convicted to, to speak on it here this morning. There are a lot of things that we can say about Psalm 32. It's It's incredibly rich in its content. Looking up some different commentators, Matthew Henry says it's a a psalm about gospel grace and gospel duty, about God's grace toward us and our proper, dutiful response. John Calvin's got a longer commentary about this psalm, but he points out early in the psalm that the psalm is an antidote for the typical way that we respond toward our own sin. Now, note, we know that we sin. People might try to deny it, but as John says, they're liars. (laughs) We all sin and we all know it. Calvin says we respond in two hypocritical ways, typically. One, we either try to minimize it, it's not really that bad. Or we try to make up for it through our own invented methodologies our own doing good to try to overcome it, our own sacrifices, our own religion, our own fake ways of dealing with it. Augustine, this was said to be his favorite psalm. And it is said that he had it written on the wall as he lay in bed dying so that he could reflect upon it and meditate upon it. One of the quotes that comes from him about this psalm is that it teaches us the beginning of knowledge and that the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself as a sinner. Think about that perspective. James Boyce has a great commentary on this and he spends about half of it focusing on the first two verses. Talking about the three ways this psalm describes sin and the three ways it describes how God deals with sin. In Dr. Chappell's sermon on Tuesday, he focused, really, I think the highlight of the sermon was when he talked about verse 5, a very emotional climax, where he pointed out that if you look at that verse, especially the latter half, there is no pause, no break, no delay between I will confess my transgressions and you forgave. 
no delay, no break. I will confess, God forgives. Now what struck me Tuesday as Dr. Chapel worked his way through the psalm and as I reflected on some of my old notes is how this psalm builds. It builds from section to section, from verse to verse. And I think it really comes to an incredible climax that often gets overlooked in the richness of the rest of the psalm. But that climax is verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That's what the psalm is building to. And if that's what the psalm is building to, then we can describe the psalm as a psalm about worship, as much about anything else. Others call it a penitential psalm or a psalm of confession, a psalm of instruction, because it talks about teaching others. But I see it in a new light this week. A psalm about worship and about why we worship. The outline of the psalm, I think, is very similar, and I'll try to point this out, to the worship of the church, at least that worship that's been practiced through most of our history, what we do when we come together in corporate worship. So what I want to do is just go through the psalm itself and then try to show this connection between the psalm and its structure and how we worship as we gather together every Sunday. And then a third thing, because we can take this beyond Sunday morning and apply it to the rest of our lives. So the psalm itself, connection to corporate worship, and then taking it beyond as well. Well, as I said, I think the high point of the psalm really is verse 11. That's what the psalm is building toward. But if you notice, it kind of starts on a high point as well in verses 1 and 2. And it's kind of a strange, and if you think about it, very unexpected, very unusual, hard-to-believe kind of high point. David starts out, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now that sounds great to read it, but think about what's being said there. Because you have to ask yourself, at least I had to ask myself, who is this person? Who, who's this? Who is the person who has their sins forgiven and covered? Who is this person in whom there is no deceit? Who is this fictional person? It should shock us a little, the opening two verses of this psalm. This would be blessed... And such a person would be blessed if such a person existed. Who is this person? It seems like in real life such a person doesn't exist. There are three wonderful words used there for sin. Transgression, iniquity, sin itself. And I think they're used to make sure we understand that there's not one area of sin that's, that's being left out here. Every aspect of sin, every expression of sin is being thought of here in these first two verses. And then the three words for how God deals with sin. The sin is forgiven. It's covered. It's not counted against this person. 
which also is meant to, to communicate to us how comprehensively God deals with this sin. He deals with it completely. Nothing is left out. There are no exceptions. So again, who is this blessed person? The high point that opens the psalm seems incredibly unrealistic and unobtainable. And so in a way, it's kind of a letdown. Who is this person? Where does this come from? And so the psalm takes us to where we need to go to build us up to where we need to be. And it takes us to the reality of sin and what it does to us as we continue in verses 3 and 4. The link is the end of verse 2. The, the, the person who is blessed has no deceit and no guile. Now, what that does not mean is that this is a person who never lies, <laughs> who's perfect in truth-telling. Providentially, we had the ninth commandment in our order of worship this morning. We fall short of that utterly and completely, keeping that command. That's not what David is saying, that this person never tells a lie or never gossip. What it does mean is that this is a person who is honest with himself. This is David in a very real sense. David sinned grievously against Bathsheba, against Uriah the Hittite. But when confronted with his sin, what did he do? Did he do what Calvin says people do? Minimize it? Try to atone for it through his own means? Let me pay for it. Let me, let me take care of it. He confessed. He, he broke down. Read Psalm 51. Against you, you only have I sinned. He admitted who he was. That's what this psalm is getting at in verse 2. The man in, whom, in whose spirit there is no deceit is the one who, when confronted by sin, recognizes it. And what David begins to do in verses 3 and 4 is show what happens when we don't do that. He says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Think about what he's describing there. His, his bones wasting away, groaning all day long. Strength dried up. Sounds like depression. Sounds like someone who's being terribly oppressed. What a horrible situation to be in. And he's that way because God's hand is heavy upon him. God is doing this to David to bring him to a point of confession, of realization. I need to admit who I am. Until I do, I'm going to feel this way. Sometimes God allows difficult things into our life to bring us to that point of confession. Sometimes he uses it for training and discipline, but sometimes he uses it to, to lead us to our sin and to a recognition of our own sin. Because God will not let his children ignore their sin. Don't try it. It's a heavy burden. Look at verses 3 and 4. So David was being dishonest with himself, not admitting who he really was, and the turning point comes in verse 5. David is low. He's at the lowest point he can get. What begins to change things and lift him up is when in verse 5, he determines to acknowledge his sin to the Lord his God. 
I acknowledged my sin. I did not cover my iniquity. I did not try to hide it. I did not try to minimize it. I did not try to, to make it less through good works. This is David without guile. This is David with no deceit. He resolves, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. It doesn't say he said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. he, He said, I will do this. The resolve is there, and as soon as the resolve is there to do it, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's powerful. That's repentance and the fruit and blessing of repentance. This is the person who is blessed, the one who admits to God their sin, confesses that sin, and seeks the forgiveness of God. And that person is blessed because God does what he promises to do. He forgives the sin. This is what verses 1 and 2 are really describing. The transgression is forgiven. The sin is covered. The Lord does not count the iniquity against that person. That is a blessing. And so there's a lesson that begins in verses 6 and 7, that if this is you, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you, offer prayer to God at a time when he may be found. In the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. God becomes our rock in Jesus, a hiding place, preserving and protecting us and surrounding us with that protection. We have that lesson from David himself in verses 6 and 7, and most everyone is is agreed that when it changes to the first person in verse 8, that God himself is speaking. So from verses 8 to 10, now God is instructing us. God has raised us up. He has forgiven us. We respond in prayer. We look to him as our protection, and then he comes to us and instructs us. I, The personal instruction of the Lord our God I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I watch you. I take care of you. I'm aware of who you are and what you're doing. I know you personally. And I care about you personally. So don't be stubborn like a mule. We all know what a mule looks like, whether in a cartoon or a movie, the person pulling on it and it refuses to go. Don't be stupid and stubborn like a mule. A powerful image of foolish resistance to God. Don't be like that person. Be teachable. Be humble. Be ready to be instructed. And then a contrast in verse 10. The sorrows of the wicked are many, but steadfast love, that chesed, that covenant love of God, surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. God's love protects us, but the wicked are full of sorrows. And if this is true, and it is, now we reach the high point of the psalm. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, you righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. How can we not do this, given what we've learned in the psalm, given what we've seen about what God has done for us? 
Look what God has done for you, therefore worship Him. And that's what's being described. Being glad in the Lord and rejoicing and shouting for joy. This is worshipful language. Do you see what God has done for you? Rejoice and worship. Give Him praise. Give Him glory. Well, again, as I was hearing this psalm on Tuesday night, what it reminded me of is how we worship on Sunday morning. This psalm is a great way to explain why we do what we do and why I think the church has done what it's done for so many centuries. We worship God because of the great mercy and love He has shown to us in Jesus Christ. We worship Him because He has forgiven us our transgressions. He has covered our sin. He has not counted our iniquities against us. Now the high point of verses 1 and 2 makes sense. This is not a fictional person. It's true of every single person who repents of their sin and turns to Jesus Christ in faith and trust and hope. This isn't just some made-up person. This is you and me. This is everyone who bends the knee in repentance and faith, turning to God and Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is telling us in Romans 4. Not by any works, not by anything that we've done, not by any law-keeping, but simply by faith. Trusting in the promises of God. And maybe as I was going through the psalm, the pattern there, the outline should be familiar. It was at least to me on Tuesday night. Because it seems an awful lot like the general contours of a typical Christian worship service. By typical, I mean how the church has worshipped for most of its history. Not how it's typically done today. The pattern is relatively simple. And it's meant to build us up to praise in God. Praise to God. Praise for Him and thanksgiving. There's the simple reality of life. We are sinful men and women, and God is holy. This reality must be acknowledged. We often come into worship as well, weighed down with the burdens and cares of life around us, the effects of sin, our own sin, the sin of others against us, and just the general fallen condition of the world. The world is broken. And we we come on Sunday morning oftentimes bearing that weight upon us. Sometimes that description of verses 3 and 4 is is applicable to us as we come into worship. We're just, we're worn down and beaten down. Oftentimes that, of course, is our own fault. I haven't been as aware of my own sin as I should be, or I ignore it or minimize it or try to deal with it myself. We can't do that. And so as we come into worship, what's after being called and responding to that call, what's the first thing we do? We see God's holiness. We repent of our sin. And what happens immediately? He forgives. <laughs> the assurance of pardon. What's portrayed in the psalm is what we do in worship. We hear the good news of salvation by grace alone. And this is followed by prayer and instruction. Isn't that what happens next in the psalm? Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Instruction from David and from the Lord himself. So we instruct each other. Paul says we do this in Corinthians. 
singing to one, one another and teaching one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But we also hear from God himself as the word is preached. It tells us something about preaching. It tells me something about preaching. It shouldn't be about my pet ideas or themes or hobby horses or ideas. The, the preacher has a terrible but awesome and wonderful privilege, and that's to speak God's word to God's people for God. That's terrifying. So you should not be hearing me, really, but you should be hearing God, hopefully, through me, just as an instrument used by God, using my personality, my vocabulary, my experiences, but in the end, the focus on His word and on the application of that word to us, myself included. In fact, myself, first of all. The instruction continues in the sacrament. The Lord's Supper is as the symbolic picture of Jesus and what he has done. His body broken for us and his blood shed for us on the cross. This is where the blessedness of verses 1 and 2 has its source. Where our transgressions are forgiven. Where our sin was covered in the blood of Jesus. Where God placed our iniquities on him. Nailed them to the cross with Christ, counted them as his instead of ours, punished him instead of us. That's why our sins are no longer counted against us. They're counted as his. We are counted as righteous, receiving his righteousness in exchange. So when we eat the supper, we claim those truths for ourselves. That's why it must be Christians who participate in the supper. You're making a claim about yourself. I claim that for me. I have repented. I have looked to Christ for forgiveness. He is mine and I am His. Just as surely as that food goes into our body and becomes part of our physical body, symbolically, we unite ourselves to Christ just as powerfully and just as intimately. And that's a powerful and beautiful truth. We are blessed in Christ. So the instruction leads, well, it leads to what it should lead to, praise. We go out always at the end with praise. We respond to what God has done to us with our offerings, with our songs, with our praise, with our worship. Be glad. Why? Because the Lord has blessed you. Be glad. Why? Because he has not counted your sins against you. He has not dealt with you according to your iniquities. He's removed them as far as the east is from the west. Be glad, rejoice, shout for joy. That's why I always try to end our service with a hopefully uplifting song of praise. Rejoice, you righteous, rejoice. And that's been the basic pattern of Christian worship for centuries. Week after week after week, and that's what we try to do here as well. Sinful people coming into the presence of a holy God, confessing their sin, being assured of their forgiveness in Christ, hearing instruction, and praising God for the realities they have learned about Him. That's worship. That's what we do. And that's why we do it. It's the old, old story of Jesus and His love. It's unlikely. Who is this blessed person? But it's real. Because it's you and me. And it's real because God makes it real for us.
we worship the way we do because of what God has done for us. And we worship the way we do to remind us over and over again because we need that reminder to remind us of what God has done for us. Because doing this builds us up to praise and to worship and to glorifying God, which after all is the chief end of man. So how does that apply beyond Sunday morning? If Psalm 32 can be seen as a pattern for our corporate worship together on Sunday, reenacting that drama of salvation week after week, reminding us of what God has done for us in Jesus, how does it affect the rest of life? Well, we talk about all of life being worship, don't we? And we say that when we love our spouses, when we love our children, when we love our parents, our neighbors, our co-workers, whoever it might be, that that is a way of worshiping God in all that we do. And it is. That's true. When we appreciate the beauty around us, the good things of life, as Paul writes to the Philippians, whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is beautiful, think on these things. That is a kind of worship, and it's good and proper, but too often it becomes a substitute for worship. And here's what I see people doing. Well, I like hiking and enjoying God's creation, so I'm going to skip Sunday so I can go worship God out in His creation. Surfing really helps me connect with God. I can really meditate out there on the water. So I'm going to go surfing on Sunday morning. I have heard that more times than I would care to tell you. And I can give you example after example after example. Instead of worship affecting our life, our life affects our worship. It's backwards. First of all, we do need corporate worship, and we need to be part of it. Hebrews 11 reminds us of that. But second, here's my thought, is what we do Sunday morning should burst out to what we do every day of the week. should be the example, the pattern for Monday to Saturday, and not the other way around. And what I mean practically is this, that a pattern for our own personal lives as we go about them day by day, week after week, is Psalm 32. Our own regular practice to acknowledge our sin before God and seek His forgiveness. And by this, I don't mean walking around like monks with our heads shaved and wearing, you know, rough spun wool so that our skin itches. What I mean is a serious contemplation of who I am and my own sin. And and having that a a regular part of how I think about myself daily, hourly, minute by minute. It's a picture of humility before God. A humble acknowledgement of who we are. Do I live life with that kind of humility regularly? Do I live life with a kind of honest assessment of who I am? And if I do, what would that look like? What would it look like if you constantly had in the forefront of your mind, (laughs) I'm a sinner. I sin regularly. How would that affect how you interact with others? I think in a very positive way. Because a person like this seeks out God's instruction from his word, you're going to flee to God's word for the comfort and assurance that it has there. You're going to look for instruction from others. Boy, that, that other person at church, 
They, they, they seem to have it together. I'm going to go learn some things from them. We instruct one another, the mature helping the, the less mature, discipling one another in the faith. A person like this prays regularly, and that's what the psalm talks about. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Well, God may, not, may be found more often than just 10.30 on Sunday morning. He's always available. We have bold access to the throne of grace through the Spirit. Always. Unfettered, unhindered. A person who knows who they are regularly goes to the Lord in prayer. And a person like that is glad because a person like that knows they are blessed not by what they do, but because of what God has done for them. That's a different kind of life. That, to me, is life as worship. Those other things are good, don't get me wrong. I enjoy a good hike as much as the next guy, and I love God's creation. But it pales in comparison to reflecting on the power of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. So yes, all of life is worship, but especially if we take Psalm 32 with us. (laughs) And that's what I would commend to your practice. Such a person is not only blessed, but such a person rejoices constantly. How can such a person be down in the mouth? How can such a person be depressed? Now I know we, we have the highs and lows of life and, and, and we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But if we take Psalm 32 with us and the remembrance of who we are and what God has done for us, we can walk through that valley of death with true joy. Truly praising God. Unfortunately, we've lost much of this truth. Not only in the world around us, but in the church around us. Worship has become a stimulus, a high to get me going through the day and make me feel good, and then hopefully it trickles out into the week. I've been around that kind of worship since the 1970s. I don't know about you. It doesn't work. It it, it doesn't last. As good as that worship time might be for 20 or 30 minutes of of singing songs, it cannot sustain you through the week. As attractive as the message may be, as clever and funny as the stories might be, the illustrations, they're not going to help sustain you through the week. But what will? I am a sinner saved by grace. I am blessed. I'm, I'm that person in verses 1 and 2. I'm that person who doesn't exist, but does because of what God has done. Now that will result in praise and glory, shouting for joy. So don't be a stubborn mule. <laughs> don't reject the instruction of the Lord. But be honest before Him. Receive His blessing. And rejoice, O you righteous, and shout for joy, all of you, upright in heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have done such a great work for me and for so many millions, if not billions of people throughout history, and for so many here this morning. 
what a blessing it is to know those who we're all in the same boat. We're sinners. We realize our sin. We acknowledge it. We confess. We repent. And you pour out your love upon us. You are rich in mercy toward us. You give us faith. And we believe what a joyous and wonderful thing that is. And what a joy it is to know such people. And what a joy it is to fellowship with such people. What a blessing it is to be among such people. We pray that that would be true not just here on Sunday mornings or Sunday during lunch or Wednesday Bible studies, but that it would go with us beyond these walls and be evident to those around us, that we might be that that shiny beacon on a hill, the sweet aroma of Christ to those who are dying, and salt and light to those who are around us. May we help others see that they too might be blessed in acknowledging their sin before you and seeking your forgiveness. And we know that you will answer that prayer for, Lord, you are ready and willing and anxious to forgive. What a glorious and wonderful thing that is. It gladdens our heart and it causes us to rejoice. And we thank you for it in Christ our Savior. Amen.